when you're doing due diligence, it's not just a property inspection. It's not just underwriting the financials, raising capital and taking it down, but it's doing environmental due diligence, legal due diligence, understanding what you're getting. And especially with commercial properties, industrial, retail, did I look at my lease that I'm buying? Do I understand the rent increases? Do I understand the tenant's rights to assign the premises? Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey listeners, Clayton here. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining us on today's show. We welcome Jeff Love. Jeff is an attorney with Gibbs Gidden out of Los Angeles, California, where he is a partner. Um, You know, Jeff, uh, mainly within his practice of law, focuses on drafting and negotiating several different types of agreements, including purchase agreements, uh, syndication, partnership agreements, and also financing docs. So just a real expert when it comes to structuring not only debt, but also uh, partnership agreements. So we really got good insight um, from Jeff on those topics. Also just, you know, common mistakes he sees uh, investors and developers make uh kind of on a daily basis within his uh, space. So anyway, loved having him on, loved the conversation. It was very interesting. Here we go. Jeff, thanks so much again for being on the show with us and the CRE Project podcast listeners. How are you doing today? I'm good. Happy to be here. Awesome, man. Awesome. So uh, as Clayton and I were talking a little bit offline, uh, a lot of our listeners are brokers and uh, investors, aspiring investors, and looking at ways to grow and scale their investment business. Oftentimes that means uh, raising capital uh, from friends, families, uh, members, accredited investors. And so what we would like to just dive into a little bit today with you is talking about syndication, uh, capital raising, what people need to know about real estate investing. Um, and and uh, we'll just kind of start from there. So as we're jumping in, um, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose uh, this particular segment of law and, and what made it exciting to you and just kind of give the listeners a little bit more personal background on how you and how you got to where you're at today? Absolutely. I always wanted to be involved in real estate. I had a family friend that owned, you know, probably 20 million square feet of industrial and retail space across the country, very wealthy guy. And I just, I kind of caught the bug. So I went to law school actually not wanting to be a lawyer forever. I wanted to learn about the law so I could have a better understanding of real estate and contracts. I was going to be a real estate developer. That was my plan. And after graduating law school, I worked for a recycling manufacturing company, learning about corporate law. And then I ended up working for that same family friend. 
doing a lot of his contracts, getting my feet wet in industrial retail leasing purchases and realized, you know, I kind of like the legal side of it because I get a, I get to see many different deals. Uh, you know, I'm more risk adverse. I, I get to work with different clients. So I eventually left that position and joined the current firm on that because it's even more variety. I get to work with brand new real estate investors, veterans. I get to deal with the real estate portion, the corporate structure and securities laws, and really get to do all types of different contracts from selling office buildings in Honolulu to you know, exchanging into industrial properties in Southern California. Cool. Clients run the gamut of you know the country. So it's just, I think it's kind of the best of all worlds for me in the real estate space. And, and not to go down a rabbit hole, which uh, Clay and I are notorious for doing, but just, just to step back for a second, as you're talking to your investor base and your clients currently right now, what's their opinion and feeling on the current market cycle, you know, global macroeconomic conditions? Is it the right time to buy? You know, there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines right now. It's an election year, a lot of uncertainty, the market, the pandemic, you know, all these things going on. What, you know, would be your sound bite out there to real estate investors right now? I'm going to give you the great lawyer answer that I did. <laughs> it, depends. It, it depends. It depends. I'm sure I'll say it again, uh, which is true. I mean, one, it depends on the asset class, you know, for clients that are in industrial, they're in a really safe space, you know, multifamily. Well, in California, we have rent control laws and people aren't paying rent. There's moratoriums. That's still a safe space too. People need places to live. Housing, housing prices, at least in California, they're going through the roof right now because people want, I'm working from home. I need more space. I need a yard for my, my kids. You know, I just need more space. Driving those prices up is driving up our multifamily. What we're scared about and what I'm seeing from brokers we work with investors is really retail and office. And we're project, we're seeing you know, office, it hasn't really taken the hit yet. And the next 12 to 18 months, it's going to be scary because in the west side of Los Angeles, where I'm based, there's 6 million square feet of space available, which is just it's unprecedented. Do you know what the percentage is, the vacancy rate for that, you know? I don't know for Los Angeles, but I did read an article sent to me by a landlord broker this morning that said there's about 10% nationwide. Of, you know, yeah, vacancy, that's high. Which is just, it, it's an unprecedented factor. And that's looking to get worse. And, because, and that it, you got to put your kind of day-to-day reasonable hat on and think, well, if everyone's working from home, we may not need as much office space. Let's save that expense. And that still hasn't come to fruition yet because people, they're still in leases they have, may not have broken. As more leases expire, they may not be renewed. Um, and retail is kind of, you know, self-explanatory. California restaurants, you still can't eat inside. The mom and pops have been suffering for a few years. And this has just kind of put them over the edge. So we're, we're still seeing a lot of deals but it's, you know, let's be creative. And what can we do with this space? Is it more mixed use? Is there a different um, use that we could put this property to? Is it as its high and best use? And that's what we're seeing with office and retail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Um, so to uh, get back on our original train of thought here, can you tell us a little bit about you know, what investors need to know about investing in, in today's market as, as people are um, 
looking, you know, maybe as an outsider looking in, what are some of the pitfalls people need to avoid and what are, what are some of the things that investors can look for in um, partnerships or when partnering with a deal sponsor that you would recommend are some of the key attributes or things that people should look for when investing? Great question. And it's, it's different for your, your, your newbie versus your, your veteran. So kind of for your, your newbies, um, you know, HDTV hurts a lot of people. Um, and I, I say that in jest, but depending on what you're doing, you know, we have a lot of clients that, you know, are getting into it, not first in syndication, but in like a fix and flip model. And the point of that being, people don't really know what they're doing when, when they're jumping in. They, they think it's an easy process. They see how easy it may be on TV or from their friend that did it or their relative. And what they haven't done is, is really looked at the project from a high level and really underwritten costs and understand what goes into the process. Hey, I got to hire a contractor. If, they, if they're delayed or there's an overrun or we're in a pandemic, so if, it, you know, if things are taking longer, that's going to hurt my cash flow. That's going to hurt my return. I have carrying costs, which you don't always see on shows like that. Yep. So first point I think is, is look at it, look at your investment from a high level, really understand what you're getting into and understand the mechanics. Taking it one step up from there, you know, our other new investors may come to us and say, I'm looking at these crowdfunding websites, you know, a friend or a friend of a friend has this real estate syndication. I want to diversify my investments. I'm thinking about investing some money. You know, whether it be $10,000, $50,000, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, you know, besides reviewing those documents for them, one of the first things we tell them is really get to know the sponsor. Does this person have a track record where they've completed projects successfully? Just because someone's putting together a deal, it could be their first deal. It could be their second deal. We've had clients that, you know, syndication, they put together all their documents, but they hadn't done many before. And lost a lot of money because they didn't exercise proper oversight over their contractor who went way over budget and way delayed and that diminished returns and actually produced losses for all the investors. So looking at the track record of the sponsor and really understanding that the deal, what, what am I getting in terms of a return? Is it a preferred return? Is there a waterfall in terms of profit distribution? Is my sponsor projecting an IRR hurdle? These, I'm throwing out terms, but really all this goes to show is what am I getting in exchange for my money? Yeah. What type of return is that? And yeah, that's that's a that's probably your number one thing to look at because I'm I'm entering into this investment to get a return on my money and really to diversify my assets. Yeah, and often we've seen that too. You know, investors, uh, new investors will often underestimate repair costs and they will overestimate disposition value and a combination of those two can put you into the red pretty quickly especially like you said if you're not taking into account soft costs and holding costs i mean your profits can get eaten up in a heartbeat so um i, I we absolutely agree that track record is is vitally important um and uh I've got another quick question just because I don't know the answer and um, I appreciate you, you talking me through this. So let's say uh, uh, a sponsor has a deal, right? You've got a holding entity and then, and then with all these various projects and deals that you're doing, you have separate holding LLC entities. Is that generally how you've seen 
syndications set up? It really does. I'm going to use it depends again. And I, okay. I, I try okay. not to do that. But, you know, one of the issues is cost. Sometimes we will see one LLC for the syndication. That LLC is going to hold title. That LLC is going to raise, you know, raise capital to my investors. And that's how they're going to do it. Other times, you're going to have a property level LLC, and that's often done for liability protection. If there's a slip and fall, yeah, there, it, it's just not property. So you, you may have two LLCs. One holds title, and then the sole member that is my really my syndication vehicle, and it expands from there. You as the sponsor, whether you're a manager in a little LLC or a general partner of a limited partnership, you may have your other entity to protect yourself, and. We're talking about syndications here. If this was a little bit broader, maybe a little more sophisticated, and it's a fund saying, I'm going to go after you know, duplexes in this geographical region. I'm going to raise $3 million, but I may acquire multiple properties. That leads us you know, more to sway to have property level LLCs because we don't want to commingle our properties. If there's a slip and fall incident and someone, a tenant's getting an Amazon package. and Absolutely. And we don't want that property to have a lawsuit and then they go after all of our different properties. So cost, complexity, administrative burden, you know, filing fees, those are the decisions that go into the structure and you can keep it simple. You can keep it complex. And I, like I said, I hate to use it depends, but you want to evaluate that situation and determine, do I need that extra LLC? Some cases, some cases, absolutely. Yes. You want to do that. Other cases, it may not be necessary. You may only have a few investors, small projects, small timeline. Insurance is an adequate vehicle to cover that. Then you may be able to keep it simpler. Gotcha. I see. And then once the property is improved or whatever your strategy is upon exit or the capital event, if you're going to refinance, all, all the capital gains, does that trickle all the way down to the individual investors themselves? Does the holding LLC and the investor hit, get hit with the capital gains? Can, can you shed some light on that? It would as long as you're using that pass-through entity. And we have, in the United States, there's, you've probably seen different entities. You've heard corporations, there's partnerships, there's LLCs, sole proprietorships. As a corporation, if it's a, if it's a subchapter C, that, that's your corp, that's your typical corporation, big public stocks, and they, they pay the corporate level tax. Okay. So we're structured as a corporation, which you don't see, and it's, it's not really recommended for real estate. Those would not pass through because the corporation is its own entity. But if you're using a, pa a pass-through entity, yeah. like a limited partnership, like an LLC, all the profits and losses, including capital gains, flow through to the individual investors, members, partners, the entity is not a taxable entity. It's not paying taxes itself. Everything is being passed through. Is LLCs, I mean, are they the most common vehicles that you typically deal with? The LLC and the limited partnership. The LLC, I'd say it's, it's newer. It's not really new. It's you know, still 40 years old, but it's much newer in terms of a corporation. And that gives you a lot of the benefits of both. So that's probably your most common. It's a little bit simpler. And it's, it's very flexible. You'll yeah. also see limited partnerships a lot. It's because it's older, more familiar, especially with bigger, bigger funds, institutional investors. And there are some benefits. There are benefits to both. In California, at least a limited partnership, you can save a lot of money on franchise taxes. You know, it's $12,000 mm -hmm. a year 
by using that instead of an LLC. So if you were, if your investment model was, you know, what kind of fix and flip, you may be swayed to a limited partnership, but your negative is now it's a partnership. I need two entities and my general partner has unlimited liability. So you probably want an entity as your sponsor to protect yourself. So wow. like I said pros and cons, but those are your two most common that you'll see really all the time for syndications. And, and, and when setting up an LLC, what, what are some key components to really focus on both as a sponsor and if you're being asked to join a partnership that may be an LLC? Yeah, yeah, and the second part to that question, Jeff, not to jump in is, you know, we see some investors want to do a Wyoming LLC or a Delaware, Delaware yeah. LLC. Do you recommend incorporating in the state in which you're going to be investing or what's your recommendation on that as it relates to Clay's question too? Good questions. I've talked in the past about you, you can use the, the the who, what, when, where, why for your, your formation. And to gain your question first, you'll see Nevada, you'll see Wyoming, Delaware, yeah, because they, they have some benefits. You know, Nevada, you have the, a greater ability to remain anonymous. Delaware, it's probably the most litigated and well-understood corporate law in the country. So you'll see a lot of vehicles set up in those states. But it's not always recommended because you may be paying extra money when you may not be getting that many benefits. So for example, I may form an LLC in Nevada because it lets me remain, remain anonymous. But my property is in California. And to do business in California, own that property, I now need to qualify my Nevada LLC to do business in California. Mm -hmm. Well, there goes my, my real ability to remain anonymous. You still have a little part of it, but, but not the same effect as if you were in Nevada. And now I'm paying California franchise taxes as well, as well as fees in Nevada. So unless I'm really getting a tangible benefit from it, it's not always recommended. If the property was in Nevada, absolutely, you know, form it in Nevada because you get those benefits. If it's in Wyoming, you want to look at, you know, where my property is. Do I have to qualify to do business in that state? And if I do, does that negate the benefits of forming the company in one of the states we've mentioned? because I'm paying double tax or I'm having to do double filings. Uh, my accountant has more work. So you want to weigh that. But yes, you do see those states a lot. Uh, Clay, to your question, a lot of things going into to both agreements. So say we have an LLC, you know, you have the LLC for your, your capital raising fund or you have your LLC as your sponsor. Um, with the capital raising fund as an investor, probably the first and foremost thing you want to do is what are my rights as an investor? What do I have the right to vote on? If the sponsor wants to sell a property, do I, do I have a say, of, say in that? Um, if he wants to bring on new members, do I have a say in that? Um, a lot of times you, you may not have many voting rights. You know, we typically don't give investors that many because they're, they're passive investors. You're really relying on the sponsor to do this mm -hmm. project. That said, you still, you still want to understand that. What's the life cycle of this LLC? Is there a term? You know, and that goes back to kind of your PPM syndication documents. Do I understand the terms of this investment in a summary? Is this a three-year hold, a 10-year hold? What are the returns in the LLC agreement? Does that match any offering documents that I was provided? You know, look at the returns. And then another, probably the other big area is what's the right to remove the sponsor? And I don't want to pick on the sponsor, but if they're not doing their job or they have too many projects going on or they're not able to handle it or 
worse, something happens to them and they're an individual and they die, what are the rights to get someone else in place and keep this project running? Yeah, it's a great point. We don't we don't talk about that very much. You don't hear very much about that, but uh, it's good. It's good to know. It's critical sure. to have that figured out. Yeah. What what are what would you say, Jeff? Kind of you know high level. Uh, and again, this this is kind of a broad audience that we have. But you know, what are some real real red flags that you typically see come across your desk when it comes to partnership agreements that you know that we really need to look out for probably the number one is the ability to remove the general partner manager sponsor if you know as a sponsor we draft documents we don't want we don't want investors to be able to remove us it's our project we put it together but there are circumstances when they might need to be they may be breaching fiduciary duties they may be maybe they committed fraud they're doing really bad things and I've seen agreements that have absolutely no way to remove wow. the manager. And from an investor standpoint, that's going too far. And even a, a reasonable sponsor would agree, hey, if I'm committing fraud and I do something really bad, mm-hmm. you guys should be able to remove me. You know, that's, so looking at the ability to remove that manager and then going back to fees is understanding the fees that this sponsor is getting. And again, I'm not, I'll flip the table in a minute and talk what sponsors need to look for. I'm not picking on the sponsor, but to your question for an investor is what fees are they getting? Mm-hmm. And are they disclosed? You know, if we have a 70, if we have a typical deal getting an 8% preferred return on my money and a 70-30 split, 70% going to the investors, 30% going to the manager. Okay, fair deal. I, I invest under those terms. And now, lo and behold, I find out the manager is taking an acquisition fee. They have a disposition fee. They have an asset management fee. They have a construction fee. Well, they may have been fair, but they weren't disclosed. And that potentially leads to lawsuits and issues and distrust. And the number one thing you need to have is our first thing we talked about is understanding the sponsor's track record. What goes along with that is trust. I'm, I'm giving you my money. I'm passive. I don't need to be involved, but I want to return on my money. You need to be upfront with what you're charging me. And I may agree to everything because you're the man, you're the sponsor, you're going to make me a killing on my return. But you, you need to disclose those. And as the investor, I need to understand and be aware of exactly what's being charged. So I, I got a question. I'm not, I'm, I'm just not familiar with this, but uh, you know, how negotiable are these things typically? Because if you have a sponsor and they're trying to get 10 different investors, how, how, does, that, how does that work, Jeff, typically? The short answer is, is not very. Um, yeah. If they've already raised an, an, enough money, sponsor, in, in your investor number nine, they're not really gonna negotiate for you. If you're not coming on board, they're gonna say, well, I can go down to John Smith down the street and he'll invest. If the sponsor is pitching this to investors and they're getting pushback, you know, you're the first one or second one, and you're saying, yeah, these terms aren't, aren't reasonable, then it's more negotiable because they may have been too aggressive. They may have pitched terms that investors aren't going to agree to, and they haven't raised the amount of capital they need, so you're able to do that. Two caveats to that is, one, if you're a big investor and you're putting in a lot of money, your negotiation just goes up. You have a lot more power. You're putting in 50% of the cap, the, cap, the project costs. Mm-hmm. You're going to negotiate a lot more than someone that's putting in 
call it five thousand dollars and even if sponsors not willing to negotiate these terms for everyone you still could potentially negotiate a term just for yourself and sometimes sponsors investors use side letters where you're saying okay you know i may sponsor may lower their fee for me you know it's for my investment maybe it's not 70 30 maybe it's 80 20 maybe i'm getting some other type of benefit or maybe some upside so just because a sponsor doesn't offer these terms that everyone doesn't mean that you can't get it especially if you're the big fish because they're often willing to negotiate more for someone that's bringing in a lot of capital because now i don't need to go to 10 investors now maybe i need to go to three and it's much simpler it's much quicker and it really saves me money too because my administrative burden is less my account's not preparing 10k ones for a partnership maybe it's three so less investors more money maybe you may yeah. be able to get more for your money so to speak is, is skin in the game important is that a red flag i'm just curious so if you're an investor and you see a sponsor that has minimal skin in the game is that something one should be concerned about or is that common it is common it's circumstances. You know, I always want to see that they have skin in the game. Otherwise, to me, it's a red flag because they don't have as much to lose. If the project goes under, they don't get their fees, but they haven't really lost anything. So when I have investors investing in deals, I really want to see, you know, a minimum of 10% that the sponsor is putting in the deal. And certain circumstances may justify less. You know, they may be very, uh, a huge track record. And you know this is a smaller project, but generally speaking, that is something you want to look for. And if they don't, it is a red flag, and it may be resolved by talking to them and understanding why they're not. Um, and maybe they're investing money in the future. Maybe they just don't have cash flow at the moment. But in an abstract, if they're not, to me, that is something that needs to be addressed and figured figured out why. And and how is a how is a guarantee typically structured? when it comes to LLCs and partnerships. Like like the loan guarantee on the construction Correct. loan claim? Correct, yep. You, it depends on uh, balance sheet. You're, if you're a new sponsor and it's a big project, you may not have the balance sheet to go to the bank with it. In that circumstance, maybe you have a third party guarantee and you're paying them a fee. They may be a member, they may be an outside party. And I actually just did one of this because it was a $30 million construction loan and sponsored didn't have enough money to back that. So wealthy partner was getting a 2% guaranteed fee. 2%. Yeah, I was going to say one, but yeah, 2%. I mean, on this was great. He's got the exposure. So, you know, you got to get paid. And 1%, 2%, you know, within that range, that's what we see a lot. If you don't have the balance sheet, other times it may be the sponsor. If they don't have as big of a track record, if they're starting out, they may just have to bear that amount and not get something for it. If you're more experienced, maybe the sponsor's getting that one to 2% fee. Um, what you wanna try to do, and we see a lot is the passive investors, I don't wanna guarantee anything. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not my deal. And with banks, sometimes they will try to look to investors, and especially if you're a big, a big member. If I am 50% of this company, they may say, hey, you own a lot, you made it be on the hook. So it is something to consider when you're shopping the loan and make sure they're not going to go after your members. And if they are, it may need to be restructured where they don't own as much, or maybe you have another holding company and you know that LLC can be a guarantee instead of the members, different ways to do it. 
but it is something to, to look into in your due diligence process because I had a lot of clients go do the whole deal. We've got everything lined up. I go shop my loan. Here's my guarantee. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. You know, you, you want my member to do it. Yeah. I just waived my contingencies. I don't have time to figure this out. Yeah. So it's something to, to really address from the outset when you're negotiating terms on a loan. Yeah. And off, and off. Go ahead, Clay. No, I was just going to ask. I mean, from a partnership perspective, is it a reasonable, I guess, two-part? Two you know, is it a red flag, obviously, if the sponsor isn't guaranteeing the loan and he's looking for the member, you know, the, the, the members to do it? Or is it a reasonable request to ask the investors to guarantee the loan? I mean, is that something that's relatively customary? And I know you're probably going to give me your, your lawyer answer again. <laughs> But I'm just curious, what do you typically see? I mean, is that is that a fair ask to say, hey, you know, can you guarantee this this thing for me? Or is that something that's that's more rare? I'll try not to give you the lawyer answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, we want to lock you into something yeah. we can come back and revisit later. <laughs> it, I, I don't think it's very typical, especially with we don't see it very often because as the mem the investor you know, I may be putting in, you know, a small amount of money, even if it's pro rata, I don't want that exposure. My, my, you know, say I put $25,000 into a deal. That's it. I'm not liable for anything else. I don't want to be liable for a capital call or anything. That's, that's it. If I lose my 25, I lose it. It's so to your question, asking the members, I think is much, much less common the sponsor may not be able to do it. So I do see fairly often going to like a third party to have that third party guarantee that may be a partner may have a relationship because the sponsor that entity is unable to, and that's common, but going to the members, unless it's a unique circumstance, you do not see it very often. Um, it's just, that's, that's it, kind, of it kind of ruins the passive nature of the sponsor, investment. Right? So that's a form of having skin in the game in addition to cash is, you know, oh, yeah. You're, you're on the you're yeah. on the fire line you know what i mean so yeah and oftentimes you know what we've seen in in you know we we do real estate development and we will have funds invest in our deal and uh those funds are not allowed to guarantee a deal now the fund managers um outside of that fund individually may come on and act as a a loan guarantor for an additional fee as a separate part of the capital stack, but they can't through that fund guarantee anything because they've agreed not to, to their investors. And that's a great point. And I think the takeaway from what you said is the additional fee. Like when you were yeah. talking about it, if I'm just one of the members saying, Hey, you guys all need to guarantee this to me, I take a big step back. If I'm getting additional fee, then it's something to consider because you know I'm not just your, your normal passive investor. I may have a bigger stake in this deal, or I'm willing to be the guarantee because I'm getting compensated for that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sure. Jeff, I'd like to ask you. Um, you know, it seems like um, people are waiting for the blood in the streets, right? And and in the retail arena, um, you know, retail's changing. Uh, the the probably the COVID pandemic expedited what was already coming down the pipe, but have you seen an increase in fund creation? So just to, to clarify for the, our listeners, when we're talking about syndication, syndication oftentimes is 
done on a deal by deal basis, whereas a fund creation, you can have capital um, more at your fingertips so you can strike while the iron is hot. Correct, Jeff, just to... Yes. Okay. And so as we're looking at fund creation, the first part of the question is, have you seen an increase in people wanting to start a fund? Two, what's the financial investment to get that launched? And number three, are you looking, are you seeing more people moving towards a, a Reg D 506B or C and what your preference and, and professional recommendation would be um, on that? We're seeing a slow uptick. I think it's okay. going to keep increasing. We're still early, I think, with, with a lot of investors you've dealt with, you know, you've dealt with PPP, businesses are still trying to survive. It's kind of waiting and seeing how it shakes out a little bit. We talked earlier about this office market, maybe 12 to 18 months. You will start seeing a lot more. The, the issue is, you know, kind of the blood in the streets by property, the saying is it's there. And the problem though, is we don't yet know the effects on the tenants. So you may be getting a great deal on this retail property, but are you able to retend it? What are you able yeah. to do with it? So yeah. we're, we're still kind of seeing how that shakes out. And yes, you're going to start seeing deals and funds, but it's, you know, you, you got to be creative and what I'm able to do with that space. Because if I'm buying a building at a 30% discount, that's going to remain vacant for five years. It's not the best investment. Oh yeah. So I think we are going to see a lot of that. And specifically with, maybe funds because we're going to be hunting for distressed property. So we're going to have that capital ready um, for funds. It, it's a typical process to a syndication. You know, you're still going to have your PPM, your agreement, but you're going to change the goal of that and what, what your purpose is. It's not to buy one, two, three main street. It's to buy all of main street. Um, <laughs> you're buying many different properties. So, yeah you know, kind of similar cost to create it. You're still going to want a PPM. You're still going to want to form your entities, whether it's a limited partnership LLC, you're still going to do your securities filings, your subscription agreements. It's just, you're really changing that purpose. And it's, it's a little bit expanded because you're not talking about one property. You're talking more about what the purpose is and what your investment criteria is. So in that sense, it's expanded a little bit, but there's still similar structures. Um, to yep. your last question is, you know, we always recommend 506C. And the reason for that is it's, you want to be cautious with unaccredited investors. So 506C, you're only allowed to have unaccredited investors. You're able to advertise, kind of market your deal. It supersedes state filings. So it's just a really easy process. And um, although there may be more upfront legwork initially, to verify the accreditation in the long run what my understanding is is that um, as you alluded to you can advertise so you can go on Facebook or LinkedIn you can talk about it on your podcast without fear of violating the SEC guidelines that's a hundred percent right and the reason you know why we there are deals when you you have to take unaccredited investors or you may want to but the SEC has the thresholds that make an accredited investor versus unaccredited. They put financial thresholds on them. You make you know, X amount during year, $200,000, $300 for the spouse. You have a certain net worth, $1 million. And while those, you, know, you, you can argue they're arbitrary. You know, I know many people that don't meet those thresholds that are much more sophisticated than people that are very wealthy. They put those standards in place because 
what we have seen, you know, firsthand is that unaccredited investor that, you know, maybe is not as wealthy, doesn't have as much cash flow and income, puts in this money for the investment and you lose that investment, that hurts. And that yeah. hurts a lot more than my, my you know, wealthy, you know, athlete, movie star, doctor, making 10 million bucks a year. Yeah, I'm annoyed I lost it. It's not going to ruin my life. Someone else uncredited, it may, and that person may become litigious and they may come after you and say, you lost my money. Let me find an attorney. What did they do wrong? What filing did they make? What didn't they disclose to me? What did they follow? So not the only reason, but that is one reason why we tend to go to accredited investors along again, what you said is that there are certain benefits to it. Okay. The five or six B, you're allowed to have unaccredited investors, but the filings are much greater with what you have, what you what you have to file, which is much more cost intensive, and you lose the ability to advertise. Okay. All right. Great. So I'd like to pivot a little bit. Um, you know, what about on the sponsor side when they go to acquire property? Um, you know, and I hate to sit here and, and have you talk about all the bad things, but you are an attorney. So that's what you, <laughs> that's what you do. But what are, what are the biggest mistakes that you've come across when, you know, a sponsor or an individual is going to buy a commercial piece of property uh, from an acquisition standpoint? What, what do you commonly see them really step on as far as landmines go? I think not understanding the purchase agreement is probably one. You know, when you're acquiring, so putting aside the syndication and those documents and the, the red flags you can make there and acquiring a property, you have your due diligence, you know, your, your business due diligence, I'll call, which is underwriting your common property inspection. But a lot of times we see them skip on the legal diligence, which starts with really your LOI, but in your purchase agreement. Um, I have one on my desk right now, so I'll talk about it, is you know, the importance of an estoppel certificate, you know, whether it's any type of commercial multifamily is how to investor buy a small duplex. He did not get an estoppel certificate, wasn't a requirement of the purchase agreement. And for the listeners, an estoppel certificate is really a certificate that the tenant signs where they're representing certain facts are true. This is, this is my whole lease. I paid rent through a certain date. Landlord's not in default. I'm not in default. And they can't later change their minds and say these aren't true. They're stopped, hence the name, from denying certain things. Our client, you know, we'll call him, we'll call him John. John didn't get an estoppel certificate, and he bought the property from someone that had inherited it from their mother who had passed away. Mother had promised certain things to tenant that they could stay for a certain time and actually had a side letter beyond the lease oh, no. gave them a five-year lease at we'll call it 25 percent of fair market value <laughs> wow. seller seller didn't know about this he inherited it from his mom you know it was earlier in the lease it had just happened uh, dealing with the death they put the property up for sale didn't know about it so it wasn't covered by his reps because that was to my knowledge buyer bought the property buyers bound to this five-year lease and destroyed his cash flow. And he has little to no recourse because seller didn't hide anything. Seller didn't know. Well, there's, there's fights and arguments to be made, but 
now you have legal costs and a huge headache. If he'd gotten a stop certificate from the tenant, tenant would have had to disclose the side letter. And if they didn't, they would be a stop from saying that it's true. They would only be bound by the lease. And if so, he had hired a good attorney to help him with the transaction, he probably would have been saved as well. He probably would have been saved. They would have caught that. And that's, that's one example of something you want to look for. And that one, and why I say purchase agreements is a lot of times you want to negotiate the established certificates in the purchase agreement. What's the form of it? And seller, are you required to get them for me? Um, especially, you know, what if we're talking about a hundred unit apartment building? Do I have to get it from all a hundred tenants? A lot of landlord sellers will balk and they'll say, I'm getting it from 80%. Sometimes that's sufficient, sometimes not, but those extra 20%, you know, there's risk. So what we often say is landlord, if you're not able to get it from someone, you're going to sign the estoppel certificate. Mm. So at least if tenant doesn't sign it and I get into this sticky situation, at least I've got a claim against you. And yes, I'm stuck with the tenant in the property. I can't fix that, but I've got a claim for damages against the seller. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what typical title issues do you usually see people come across that can be really, really catastrophic? Not one, not reading the title commitment or preliminary report. You may rely on your broker and they may look at it, but it's not their job. You know, I kind of personally, I have three hats. You know, I am a licensed broker. I don't practice, but I have it. I'm an investor and an attorney. So putting all this together, you know, it's not their job, you know, and you as a broker, you don't really want that job. I don't want the extra liability. You yeah, know? amen. Yeah. I, you, Go to your attorney, let them look at it. You know, when there's a tax issue, I say, ask your accountant, ask your insurance broker, ask your broker, because you want to ask the expert. So the question with, with title is, uh, I give you another, you know, current example, client was buying an industrial building. Um, there's an, you know, not that many, call it seven or eight exceptions to this title commitment. One is from 1924. It's hundred years old. What, what could possibly be in there? We read it. It's in a, it's an old deed. And what it says is you cannot sell alcoholic beverages from the premises. Mm. It's still valid a hundred years later. Wow. Well, there goes certain uses. I can't sell this to a tap room or restaurant. And what's worse is if you violate it, it has a reverter, which means the property reverts to the grantor and that deed a hundred years ago, which, <laughs> which would now be their heirs. So if I go and I lease to a tap room without knowingly what's in that restriction, I could potentially lose my entire property. Wow. Clay, you're always asking for the tripwires and there it is, buddy. That's what I like to know, man. <laughs> so, no. yeah. Understanding I mean, that commitment, looking yeah. at it, and part of, you know, we talk about purchase agreement and, you know, estoppel, your other parts of due diligence, have I looked at my title commitment? Have I looked depending on where my property is, you know, if it's residential, you may not need it, but have I done a survey? You know, if I'm concerned about encroachments or easements, do I understand the boundaries of my property, which relates to title? Yeah. And then have I, have I looked at environmental, not just my property I'm buying again, I'm using buying a duplex. It's residential. I'm not concerned, but did I realize that there's a gas station behind my property or caddy corner or diagonal? And did I look into the groundwater migration? because that could create an issue. And lo and behold, if I didn't do a phase one assessment, or I didn't look into it, 
and one of my tenants, you know, gets sick or make a claim. Unlikely, you know, it's groundwater, but if it seeps or they have a vegetable garden or they do something that gets that and they get sick, well, there's your lawsuit. You got a big claim. Yeah. And that's even bigger in commercial properties, whether there's underground storage tanks. So the point of all this being is when you're doing due diligence, it's not just a property inspection. It's not just underwriting the financials, raising capital and taking it down, but it's doing environmental due diligence, legal due diligence, understanding what you're getting. And especially with commercial properties, industrial, retail, did I look at my lease that I'm buying? Do I understand the rent increases? Do I understand the tenant's rights to assign the premises? If, if it's a, you know, called not very well written assignment provision, can they assign it to, you know, a hot dog down the street that has no credit and now I'm stuck with this tenant for five yeah. years? Mm -hmm. You know, or even on residential, you know, you give a residential, it's not that common that you pursue them. They may not have the financial backing of a big tenant, but how strong is my default provision in that lease? Can I really get them out if and when I need to? If they have extra tenants in there, if they're smoking in a non-smoking building, understanding the leases that I'm doing, because before I close, if I have issues, that's my time to go to seller and say, you got to fix this. You got to negotiate. You got to give me a credit. Once I close, I'm stuck with it. Yeah, every, everybody always thinks commercial real estate investing and development is so sexy and fun and exciting. And, and then you get into this part and it's like, Oh man, this, this, you you really have to read all that. And that's work. So, um, you know, this is the side of the business that people oftentimes are unaware of, but it is, so important and it's the foundation on which everything else is based so um well and you can really get in a lot of trouble that's the oh, biggest yeah. thing i mean yeah. if you i mean to to jeff's point this is what i stress to to a lot of people that i talk to is you know you you absolutely if you're acquiring a piece of commercial real estate need to lean on experts like jeff or a cpa that really understand what to look for in these different documents because like a title commitment you know it's a very daunting you know piece of paper i mean you know you go through there and you have easements like you said from a hundred years ago that are sometimes even written in a different type of language with how they talked back in the day i mean it's just a really interesting um part of our business that you can find yourself in a lot of trouble uh you know, both legally and financially, if you don't approach it appropriately. So, um, so yeah, we, we value guys like you, Jeff. Uh, oh, and yeah. that's why we wanted to really kind of have you on the show because yeah. you really kind of protect people in this game and, and, and we're thankful for that. So for a lot of our users, you know, our users, listeners that are out there that, that want to connect with you, first off, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, can you, can you practice anywhere? Or are you just focused mainly in California? How does that typically work? Can people engage with you? And We do. We practice across the country. Uh, depending on the issue, we may engage with local counsel to confirm the deed, but syndications will do work across the country. And, you know, uh, it's kind of fun. I actually like, you know, we just completed a deal in Florida to get to see, you know, different real estate. Um, so we, we can when we do. Okay. Yeah, perfect. It's a good, good question, Clay. Yeah. So how, how, how do you prefer people to connect with you? What's a good way? Uh, they can check out our website. It's www.gibbsgiddin.com. 
and there's information about me and contact information, feel free to email me, jlove at gibbsgiddin.com. And then I'm on uh, LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And Gibbs Giddin is G-I-B-B-S-G-I-D-E-N. And we will have that in the show notes for everybody. Great. Well, great, man. Thanks again for being here. Greatly appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, people uh, take this to heart and learn to engage with guys like you when approaching a commercial real estate acquisition or partnership agreement. So again, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.